Welcome back to the program. America has long gotten itself involved in civil wars around the world. In Korea, Vietnam, and Spain on the African continent, and more recently in Afghanistan, Egypt, Iraq, and Syria. It should not be surprising then to realize that other nations were engaged in the outcome of America's civil war, and that it provided Lincoln ample opportunity to engage in foreign affairs. We think of Lincoln as our domestic president, Lincoln saving the Union so that this nation would not perish. But he also straddled the world during what might be called America's first age of globalization. Kevin Perino is a veteran journalist who spent decades writing for Newsweek, where he served as the senior writer and bureau chief in the Middle East. He examines Lincoln's role in foreign policy in his new book, Lincoln in the World. It is my pleasure to welcome Kevin Perino to the program today. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you here. It was a period of time when, when the world was starting to engage with each other in ways that, as you talk about, have real parallels to the world that we live in today. That's right. It, it was a real age of globalization, a lot like our own. Um, this is the, the years leading up to the Civil War saw the, the advent of the telegraph, the steamship. There was this huge boom in newspaper readership. And, and so in a lot of ways, um, the world was shrinking um, and people were, were, were paying attention to what was going on across uh, their borders in a way that they never had before. Um, what was interesting to me, though, is it was also um, an age of realpolitik. The, the term realpolitik came into usage um, uh, for, for the first time um, in the years just after the Crimean War and before the Civil War. So you had also had, at the same time this global globalization was going on, some very hard-headed statesmen um, across the world. And so, um, you know, Otto von Bismarck uh, takes power in 1862 in Prussia, and so the, the age of blood and iron is on its way. Um, you've got um, Lord Palmerston, the Prime Minister of Britain, who's famous for saying Britain has no eternal friends, only national interests. So, so what was interesting to me, and what I think really does have some similarities to our own times, is this juxtaposition of, the, on the one hand, realism in these nations, this kind of national competition going on, driving nations apart um, and competing. At the same time, this, uh, these other forces are bringing um, uh, the, the, the nations closer together. So I, I found that dynamic really interesting to explore. And as Lincoln looked at this, even as a congressman, looking at the war in Mexico, he brought to it a kind of moral vision that was in some ways diametrically opposed to this real politique that was moving through the world. Well, I, you know, I, I would disagree a little bit with that. I think um, Lincoln was, Lincoln's law partner um, liked to say that um, Lincoln was a realist as opposed to an idealist. Um, he, he um, you know, he, he considered these questions very carefully. Um, and in the, in the Mexican War, I would actually say um, that the Mexican War was an example um, of his realism in a way. The first chapter in, in, in the book, we do a, um, a kind of prelude to Lincoln's Civil War diplomacy by focusing on, um, as you said, the, the, the Lincoln's first, his only term in Congress, um, which coincided with um, the end of the Mexican War, which was America's first kind of full-scale conflict on foreign soil. And um, the debate that was going on at the time in Congress was, what do we do with Mexico now? Do we absorb it? Um, and there was a movement called the All, All Mexico Movement that favored absorbing the whole thing. Um, and there were other people who said, you know, we don't want to necessarily do that. Lincoln was actually 
um, on the other camp, the camp of people who said, you know, we don't want to absorb all of Mexico, and um, he, he actually um, was, was in conflict with his law partner at the time, um, Billy Herndon, who was, uh, we, don't know, we don't know if Herndon was, was in favor of all Mexico, but um, he, he, he was definitely a much more um, vigorous um, proponent um, of the Mexican War than Lincoln was. So I, I actually think that episode um, is an example of Lincoln's realism, and his idealism, you tend to see, you, you, you see it coming out a little later, especially after 1854, when slavery um, really really becomes the overriding issue in the 1850s. How did Lincoln's view of America's place in the world evolve over time? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, Lincoln, what I find so interesting is the sort of the enduring tension in Lincoln's worldview. On the one hand, um, he was, he came out of the, the Whig tradition, um, which was very much focused on economic development, building roads and canals, uh, and, um, and um, links to the outside world, um, that kind of thing. Um, and so, on the one hand, you know, America's material expansion during the war years and after, after or even his death, um, I, I, I think says something about Lincoln's um, worldview. A lot of the, the innovations that led America, that helped America along onto, toward becoming a world power um, took place during the Civil War. Things like um, the first national income tax, which allowed the central government to extract resources from, from the wider country, um, that sort of thing. Um, and so on the one hand, you have that. And on the other hand, you have, as you said, his idealism, um, which um, um, you know, Lincoln, Lincoln famously said, um, I, I, I hate slavery because it deprives our, um, our government of its just influence in the world. Um, and so, so the, 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 what happened when um, the Union won the Civil War is there was this kind of tension between between Lincoln's idealism and his, his, his this kind of ideal view of America's place in the world, and his realism um, and um, this sort of material um, expansion, and there's been a, a, a debate um, going on for many many years in the, the historiography about whether these two things were in conflict or um, whether they kind of worked together. Um, Richard Hofstetter, the, the mm -hmm. historian at Columbia, wrote a famous essay. Um, saying essentially Booth's bullet saved Lincoln um, from having to to live through the Gilded Age, where some of where his his uh, economic values would have destroyed his moral values, um, and there's other historians who take the opposite tack and say no, the the two were actually compatible. So um, so they did evolve in some ways over the course of uh, of the war and and Lincoln's evolution as a statesman, but um, in other ways, I think the most interesting um, opportunity to see them evolve, Lincoln never lived to see. I mean, it would have been really interesting to see how they would have evolved in the years after the Civil War, and we never had that chance, unfortunately. What role did Lincoln see other nations playing in America's Civil War? How did he see the role of, of the international community impacting the Civil War? Certainly in the Emancipation Proclamation, he used the leverage of, of international influence, but how did he see beyond that the influence of other nations in the Civil War? Right. Well, Lincoln's his biggest task was to keep the European powers from intervening in the Civil War. So his, his foreign policy was overwhelmingly dedicated to keeping that from happening. Um, and as this kind of secondary thing, there were a series of, of kind of diplomatic flaps with, with France, with Spain, with Britain, that Lincoln had to keep from erupting into a war. It's a, a similar but slightly different 
um, task. And so those were, those were the biggest things um, that he was focused on. And what I think is interesting is we kind of think, you know, we, we, our, our kind of pat view of this is that, well, the European powers must have loved seeing, you know, a, a rival, the rival United States going to pieces across the Atlantic, because here was, you know, here was a rival who can no longer um, uh, you know, be the rival that it once was. Um, and, and to some extent, that was true. Um, Palmerston and Britain kind of crowed about the disunited states of America and, um, and, um, and Napoleon III, the emperor of France, also kind of, you know, was, was kind of, you know, he told people he was happy to see what was going on. But in reality, I think the, 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 power, the interests of the European powers weren't necessarily to see the, the United States dismembered. Um, you know, Britain had Britain was the the um, the United States' largest creditor at the time, so there were economic and, and financial ties um, tying the two together. Um, France saw a, a united United States as a counterweight to their their historical um, antagonist, Britain, um, and so. Um, you know, so so I, I, I think at, at its most basic, uh, it wasn't really in the interests of the European powers to intervene in the war. And Lincoln's job was to, to sort of help them, you know, help them understand that and, and keep from, you know, keep some kind of diplomatic flap from erupting that would, um, you know, that, that would change that calculus. The one thing that comes across as well is the degree to which Lincoln seemed to really enjoy this aspect of the presidency, that he saw the, the, the power aspect of it and even the romance of it as something to be enjoyed. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think he had to try to find enjoyment wherever he he could at a co- in a conflict, um, you know, as, as intense as that. But it, it wasn't um, Lincoln's sense of humor um, certainly um, served him well. I mean, let's remember, this is the enormous amount of stress that was on Lincoln. Lincoln said in the first days of the Civil War, um, if I hadn't known, I wouldn't have thought I would have been able to survive it. And Lincoln literally broke down at times. He just stayed in bed all day. I mean, he had, he had a migraine. And um, this is right in the early days of the war, at Fort Sumter. Um, and so, so there's tremendous stress on him. And, and Lincoln relieved that in part um, with, his, with his wonderful sense of humor. Um, and there's a British diplomat who said, um, you know, talking about Lincoln's kind of natural diplomatic skill, um, and, and um, said, you know, a professional diplomat, a European diplomat, might um, kind of shrug their shoulders or tell a little lie to get out of a tight spot. Lincoln would 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 tell a story and and uh, everybody would laugh and he would kind of move on in this cloud of merriment um, that that his joke produced. And so that was a really useful skill in diplomacy. Um, and then you know from time to time um, w- when there were kind of annoying diplomatic flaps. Lincoln used his sense of humor in a way that I think kind of diffused the situation. Um, one of my favorite stories is, um, you know, the, the, the diplomatic court at this time was very kind of um, unprofessional. It was, it was populated by a lot of kind of dilettantes and, um, you know, in a lot of cases, kind of radicals and um, uh, political enemies were sent abroad to populate the diplomatic posts to get them out of the way. So this is something Lincoln had to deal with all the time. And one of my favorite stories is a group of men come to Lincoln um, asking to have their candidate appointed as an envoy in the Sandwich Islands, which is Hawaii now. And they come to him and they kind of, they make their case, you know, on the, on the merits. And, um, but then they say, you know, our guy is really sick. He's not doing too well. And the climate in Hawaii would be really good for him. And Lincoln just kind of looks at them and says, uh, gentlemen, unfortunately, I have eight other applicants for that job and they're all sicker than your man. <laughs> so he had a sense of humor about these kind of things and he really had to. 
Talk about the role of William Henry Seward, his Secretary of State, and their relationship as it related to America's foreign policy during the Civil War. Right. Um, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why there hasn't been um, a kind of holistic um, human account of Lincoln's role in um, in Civil War diplomacy um, in nearly 70 years, which is the last time um, that um, that this was written about in this way. Um, and the reason, I think, is that, as you say, Lincoln had a, 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 a pretty strong um, and, um, and and pretty good Secretary of State in William Henry Seward. He was a lot better traveled than Lincoln. He was more cosmopolitan. Um, and Lincoln relied on him um, for a lot of day-to-day um, diplomatic affairs and correspondence and these kind of things. So I think if you if you situate Lincoln right in the middle of his own foreign policy, um, you, you can end up with a, a hagiography um, because Lincoln didn't do every little thing um, in um, in foreign affairs. But the things that Lincoln did do were critical. And so what I've tried to do in the book at is look at the things that he did do um, without saying he did everything. But um, he, one of the things he did have to do is at key moments, um, especially early on in the war, uh, he had to overrule Seward from time to time. Um, um, Seward was kind of fond of, he, he, he was competent, as I say, but he could also be vain and impetuous. And Lincoln from time to time had to dial him back a little bit. But by the end of the war, they came to work together um, pretty well, and um, their, their diplomacy, um, they, you know, they walked in lock, lockstep on a, a lot of important diplomatic issues um, toward the end of the war. And um, I like to say, there's a, a line that I love from one of Seward's biographers. He said, Lincoln and Seward were like each other's sober second thought, which I thought is a really nice <laughs> turn of phrase. And um, they sort of, you know, they, it, it was a kind of symbiotic relationship where sometimes Lincoln was right about things, and sometimes Seward was right, um, and together they would kind of go back and forth, and I think they, they got to where they needed to go um, ultimately together. The one powerful element that Lincoln seemed to always add to the equation was this unique sense of patience that, and timing that Lincoln had. Talk a little about that. Um, that's right. I mean, that's a, a really important skill um, in in international affairs, um, in my view, because um, changes in the international power grid um, don't happen every day. They happen very slowly. And so knowing when you can make a change um, and when you can't um, is, is a really important skill. And Lincoln was was very, very good at that. Um, and he, he liked to, there's a story he liked to tell about his own kind of decision-making process about this. And he said, um, you know, it was like, I, 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 my decision-making process is like watching a pear ripen on a tree. He said, I'll, I'll wait, I'll wait, I'll wait, and then when it's ripe, I'll make my decision. I'll pluck the pear. And he really did that on a number of occasions. Um, another kind of metaphor that I like, not a metaphor, but another kind of thing that I like is um, from one of uh, a, 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 another great Lincoln biographer um, said, um, compared it to that, um, the uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's um, serenity prayer that they teach in various 12-step programs, um, God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I can't change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, knowing the difference, as we were talking about, between the things you can change in international affairs and the things you can't is a really um, you know, it's a, it's a critical skill in, in the field, and, um, and and Lincoln did that very well. And it's always kind of interesting, you know, obviously impossible to say how Lincoln would have handled um, 
a, um, a, a crisis like um, the Syrian civil war or, or the situation in Egypt. I mean, we, we just don't know. But um, you can imagine Lincoln applying his, um, his, sense of, his sense of patience, his sense of timing, and trying to act just when he thought um, it was right. I, kind of, I, I love to kind of speculate about Syria and Lincoln because um, I, there's a, a phrase that Lincoln, a story Lincoln used to tell. He said, um, uh, in, uh, in, a, in a fight between a man and wife, you never want to get between the wife's skillet and the man's axe. You know, Lincoln was very wary of sticking his nose in places. Um, he, he felt like they didn't belong. Um, so I have my doubts about whether he would have been a, a vigorous proponent of uh, intervention in a place like Syria. But obviously, you know, just no way to know. It was also a time when, and you've mentioned a few, the world was populated by a pretty colorful cast of characters. You've talked about Napoleon and Bismarck, but there were many others as well. There were, yeah. Um, Lincoln's uh, minister to Russia, Cassius Marcellus Clay, was an abolitionist, um, and um, he was a very colorful character. And he he would walk around St. Petersburg with um, Bowie knives hanging from hanging from his uniform and um, getting in fist fights. I mean, he was a uh, um, he, he was a very colorful character. Lincoln's minister in London, Charles Francis Adams, was John Adams' grandson, so he, he was a pretty competent um, diplomat, um, but also an interesting character. Um, and and, you know, another interesting and kind of overlooked player in the diplomacy um, of the Civil War is Mary Lincoln. Mary Lincoln was more cosmopolitan than Lincoln was in a lot of ways. She had grown up in Lexington, Kentucky, which was called the Athens of the West at the time. Um, she went to a school where the students spoke French. Um, and so she was pretty worldly. And, um, and uh, you know, from time to time, she would try to get her candidates appointed um, to various diplomatic uh, posts with various degrees of success. Um, she, she succeeded from time to time. She got one of her, her people appointed um, to a consulship in Scotland, um, and um, she failed at other times. Um, but, um, you know, this was, this was a factor. I don't know how big a, a factor it was, but it was certainly an interesting dynamic to watch as the relatively provincial Lincoln, you know, um, who's dealing with his relatively cosmopolitan wife. And, um, and so that was, it was also a factor. There's a great line in, um, in Cassius Marcellus Clay in his diaries or his letters. Um, Clay, the, the minister in Russia, was a childhood friend of Mary Lincoln's, and um, she didn't get him appointed, but um, she did know him. And he tells of a time when he came back in the middle of the Civil War um, to Washington, and Mary Lincoln, um, who hated Seward, said, um, you know, Cassius, you don't have to pay any attention to what Seward says. You know, nobody listens to him. And Seward's, you know, Seward's the Secretary of State. He's Clay's boss. And so she really did kind of, kind of meddle in, the, in these things. Even Karl Marx was a player in world affairs at this same time. He was, and I, I, I you know, I, I think we forget that sometimes that they that these two um, uh, figures were were even operating on the stage at the same time. Karl Marx in the 1850s wrote for the New York Tribune, which was the largest um, American newspaper at the time, um, and he wrote a lot of articles. He wrote three or four hundred articles, some of them on the front page. Um, and Lincoln read the Tribune pretty religiously. We don't know whether Lincoln ever said, you know, I read Karl Marx wrote this, but he may well have. I mean, he, he, he read the, the paper a lot. Um, so, um, but, um, but my, my point in, I, I kind of look at them side by side, and my point isn't 
to say that they influenced each other, their ideas influenced each other in any way, and they certainly didn't know each other. And Karl Marx wasn't a player in the diplomacy of the Civil War um, in, in the way that some of these other figures that we've been talking about were, like Seward and Clay and, and Charles Francis Adams. But the reason I like to look at them side by side is because as we started talking about at the beginning of this conversation, this was an age of globalization, and what was interesting is the nature of power was changing. Um, these were, um, um, you know, the, the, the ordinary people were beginning to have a greater role in international affairs than, um, than they had in the past. And so both Lincoln and Marx were trying to find ways to kind of exploit this, this change in the international environment. And Lincoln did it in one way, as you also mentioned earlier on, by, with the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln thought the Emancipation Proclamation, um, he, he thought of it as partly as a tool of international relations. He thought if he could speak across the Atlantic directly to ordinary European mill workers in places like Manchester and Liverpool, these are the, the cities that were really hurting from the cotton shortages that the blockade produced during the Civil War, that if he could talk directly to them, they might put pressure on aristocratic statesmen to, to keep from intervening in the war. Because these, a lot of these mill workers um, were opposed to, to slavery. Britain had abolished slavery a, lot, uh, a, a long time before um, um, uh, the U.S. did. So, so he tried to do this, and that was one way in which Lincoln was trying to kind of engage in public opinion and shape it rather than just be shaped by it. And Marx was, was doing the same thing. He was realizing that um, he, he was operating in a world where ordinary people um, had, um, had, had more influence in the world. He was trying to, to win their sympathies with his, you know, and his theories of class conflict and these kind of things. Um, and, um, but um, both of them, both Marx and Lincoln, supported, you know, wanted, wanted the union to win. Um, Marx was a pretty vigorous proponent of emancipation. He thought that if Lincoln proclaimed um, freed the slaves, then it would create some ideological consistency for the North to win the war. Um, Lincoln really, or uh, Marx rather, really wanted the North to win for slightly different reasons than Lincoln did. Um, Marx thought if the, the, the bourgeois North kind of could, could defeat this, the slaveholding aristocracy, then that was the first step toward the workers triumphing over, over both. Um, and um, so he, he had a different, a different rationale, but he and Lincoln were moving in the same direction. And it's interesting to watch Lincoln develop these ideas that really became kind of the bully pulpit of the presidency. Lincoln brought it really to a new level long before Teddy Roosevelt. That's right. I mean, this was this was an age of of, of, um, of um, you know it was a great age of newspaper journalism um, in the, these um, these years before the war. I think the number of newspapers in the the twenty or thirty years before the war went from about a thousand five hundred to a thousand newspapers in the U.S. to something like four thousand. So there was a huge explosion of newspaper readership, and it was a real question of how you know. How you know am I gonna am I gonna let myself be shaped by these these new forces or can I or, or can I shape them? One thing that both Lincoln and Seward did is they released their their um, diplomatic dispatches publicly, which was something that hadn't been done before, and they did it partly for their public relations value. Um, and um, so you know this was you know so yeah. This is, you know, another interesting thing about this dynamic, the kind of the, the newspaper boom, is that it was an age where um, 
where nothing is secret anymore. And that has a real resonance with today's headlines, I think. Um, the French empress, Eugenie at the time, um, said, um, diplomacy has so few secrets nowadays. You know, this is 150 years before Edward Snowden and, and, and all this. So they were having to deal with um, um, this, this kind of the downside of, of um, of, of an information age too, which is leaks. And um, Lincoln had—I uh, I love this. This guy Adam Gorowski, who—he who, um, reminds me. Do you remember a, a month or two back there was uh, this guy they called the Twitter Mole in sure. Washington, and he sure. was—he was tweeting out anonymous things about um, President Obama and Secretary Kerry, and and he was—he had to be fired when they discovered who he was. Lincoln had a guy that was just like that. Obviously not on Twitter, but um, Count Adam Gorowski. He published his diary in the middle of the Civil War, and he calls Lincoln. Pighead Lincoln, and he, he worked at the State Department. He worked for Seward, and he, he, he wrote that his job was to keep Seward from making a fool of himself. I mean, he was a real character, and he had to be, he had to be fired also. But this was something that, you know, this kind of leaks and, and gadflies was something that Lincoln had to deal with, just like President Obama does. It's interesting to look at it also as it relates to the way the world was coming together. I mean, at this time, the telegraph was there, steamships were there, N- news was traveling pretty fast within the U.S., but there was still no transatlantic cable. It was still traveling pretty slow overseas. You make an excellent point about that. Um, the, the, um, the continentally in North America, news—you know—you can get news faster than ever before, and it absolutely revolutionized um, what was going on um, on this side of the pond. But as you mentioned, the, the transatlantic telegraph still wasn't working, so news took—you know—a week or ten days or two weeks, depending on what kind of ship was carrying the news. Um, and and that produced this really interesting dynamic where. Um, on the one hand, you could you got information, and by the way, you know, a week or two weeks is much faster than it had been previously. So, you know, news was traveling faster no matter what. But on the same time, you still had this kind of delay, um, and I think that was sometimes it was sometimes annoying and could lead to misunderstanding. But it was sometimes helpful because it allowed passions time to cool a little bit. And some of these crises, you know, as we know, we can you know, in the heat of the moment, people get very excited um, on either side and. But sometimes when you give it, a, give it a few days or weeks out of necessity because you can't, you know, the dispatches just can't travel across um, the ocean that fast, um, it gives passions time to cool a little bit. And I think that helped diffuse some of these crises um, in some cases. Kevin Perino, the book just out from Random House is Lincoln in the World, The Making of a Statesman and the Dawn of American Power. Kevin, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.